Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. More sad news in the UFO field, the recent death of Richard Hall, who many of you might remember as author of a couple of books called The UFO Evidence. There was a part one and a part two. The part one was written when he was working with Major Donald Kehoe at NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. As you listeners know, I've had kind of an on-off association with Richard Hall. He pointed his finger at me and told me I couldn't come to NICAP's office back in 1965. I wasn't welcome, but then said 10, 12 years later, well, that was water under the dam. Well, to remember Richard Hall, we have Jerry Clark, Don Ecker, Paul Kimball, Bruce McAbee, and Kevin Randall. Before we proceed, Kevin, since you've collected the information that you said was borrowed from other sources, perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit about the life and the work of Richard Hall. Well, I'll give it a shot, although I'm sure there's others much more qualified than I to talk about Dick Hall's career. But for those who are interested, Dick Hall was born on Christmas Day of 1930 in Hartford, Connecticut, and attended, I guess, elementary school and high school there in Connecticut. In 1949, he enlisted in the Air Force, apparently to avoid being drafted by the Army, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And he served on active duty until 1951 and spent six years in the Air Force Reserve. Others have mentioned, and, and, it, and it deserves mentioning, after, after getting his degree in Tulane University, he went on to Washington, D.C. and worked full-time for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena with Major Don Kehoe. He was first an executive secretary, then an assistant director, and then finally an acting director. And while he was there, he put together... What an awful lot of people think is one of the very best books about UFOs, the UFO evidence. He wrote an awful lot of it, but he collected it as an editor would. And he followed that up quite a while later with the UFO evidence part two. He served as the chairman for the Fund of UFO Research. He was also one of the editors or early editors of MUFON's monthly magazine. And he wrote a column for UFO magazine called Reality Check for a number of years. But beyond his UFO Interesting. He was very interested in UFO, and he'd done a number of uh, articles and books about women who fought during the Civil War. He edited technical reports on social science and the environment, and he was a believer that UFO reports were generated by people who saw craft from another planet. He believed that we were being visited by extraterrestrials. And I think one of the nicest things uh, was something written by Mike Sword, who talked about... Uh, knowing a, a few weeks before Dick passed away that it was, he was very, very ill and put together a bit of a eulogy for him, which goes on to say, in part, like no other civilian researcher made such a commitment except a paid staff to a UFO magazine or a UFO uh, organization. Dick was known as irascible critter, but the flame burned deep, and he could not tolerate the utter lack of accountability so ubiquitous in our field. Some, maybe some of us remember when his reality check column was the only sane piece of writing in the entire newsstand magazine of UFO. Sorry, Don Ecker, but that's what Swords has said. Dick would tell you that if you were full of crap when no one else had the guts to do so and the knowledge to make you respect it. So he was, he was a very important figure in UFO research. I think he brought a, a, a rational and sane voice to the study. And when everybody else may be out on a tangent that was irrelevant or unimportant, Dick Hall dragged us back to the center where we needed to be. 
that gives you a little bit about the uh, the person of Dick Hall and tells people a little bit more about him. Now, irascible, I can understand that, Kevin. <laughs> now, Don, you were with UFO Magazine when Richard Hall worked there, right? Wrote a column mm-hmm. for you, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I was the director of research. We've got to differentiate between when my wife, Vicki Cooper Ecker, who was founder and the original publisher, and I ran UFO magazine, and when, because of financial considerations, we had to take business partners. Now, these were actually two very different publications, even though it was the same one. Uh, Dick Hall always was the voice of reason in the magazine. But after we took partners because of financial considerations, and they then became the driving force. And I'm not talking, incidentally, about William Burns, who today is publishing UFO magazine. I'm talking about previous to Burns. They went in a direction that often Vicky and I did not agree with, but we had absolutely no say-so in the direction that it went. And I'll never forget when Dick Hall severed his connection with the magazine. It was with a particular issue of the publication that we highlighted on the cover, some ancient Egyptian artifacts and archaeology, and that was the final straw that drove Hall out, and he was quite uncomplimentary about it. As a matter of fact, I'll be very honest. At the time, I was was very angered by the way that, that Hall acted. But years went by, that's water under the bridge. And Dick Hall always will remain, as far as I'm concerned, one of the voices of reason in a field filled with, uh, as we all know, very little reason. Bruce, uh, I'd like you to, to speak, please, about when you remember meeting Dick Hall and what your association w- was with him, especially um, during the time that he was involved with the Fund for UFO Research. Okay, well, first I'll tell you a story which uh, basically resolves around Dick Hall changing my life, uh, inadvertently, I'm sure. <laughs> but when I was uh, going to uh, American University in Washington, D.C., on the way to my PhD. I think it was in the fall of 68 that two gentlemen showed up. I think it was Holland Bowener. Two gentlemen showed up to give a talk at the university on flying saucers. Well, now I guess everybody here will remember that in a time period from roughly 66, 67 up to about 69, it was uh, legitimate to talk about UFOs without having a bag over your head. The subject was in the news because of the, uh, the Condon report, the sightings that occurred in 65 and 66, leading to the Condon study that ran from like 67 and then uh, finally was published in the late 68. So I had uh, gotten interested in the subject. I read uh, UFO's Serious Business, which probably is one of the books that has attracted more people to the subject than, uh, than other books. It was um, Frank Edwards, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I had tried to do a little research, read some books by APRO and so on, by Coral Lorenz. And, and so when these guys showed up at the university, I said, okay, I will go and run the lecture. Now, the key thing was, after they had gone through this lecture, they said, uh, well, NICAP needs volunteer help. We need people to open letters and write answers and stuff like that. So uh, a few weeks later, I went down to the NICAP office. 
uh, I had a, read about NICAP in numerous books and heard about it in the news and so on, so I assumed it was a big, fly, flourishing organization. There was lots of a big building, you know, uh, lots of rooms for scientists doing analysis and secretaries running around filing things and so on. <laughs> and when I got down to um, near DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., for those of you who are familiar with it, 1536 Connecticut Avenue was the address. And uh, back in those days, along Connecticut Avenue was a series of row houses. 1536 was just another row house. Didn't have a front door on it. You walk up a few steps, go through the entranceway, up a long stairway then to the second floor where there was a, a single light bulb lighting the hallway and a door that opened into what I assumed was going to be something grandiose. But at this point, my expectations were diminishing. <laughs> <laughs> I opened the door. And there I see before me stacks of books and bookshelves and uh, things falling, uh, lying all over the floor and so on. And uh, a broken down old lady secretary by the name of Isabel Davis, who, by the way, was not very broken down, was very intelligent, and uh, was basically running the whole organization at that point. That was after the Berliner Berliner, Gordon Lohr, everybody who had been there had left. And so had Kehoe had been essentially deposed from his throne, some people would argue, by the CIA at that point, but in any case, that changed my life because uh, I got to uh, uh, see the actual files of NICAP. And of course, that's where the rubber meets the road. You can read all the analyses you want, you can read what people comment about various witnesses and so on, you go and actually read the files themselves and what people say they saw, this can make an impact. Even more important than that was, by going there, I was invited to join the local NICAP subcommittee. Now, MUFON, has uh, state directors and section directors and field investigators and so on, a whole hierarchy of people. NICAP operated by having local investigating groups in various places throughout the United States, mostly big cities and so on. So I joined this local investigators group and actually got to go on some UFO sighting cases. And they turned out to be quite interesting. Instead of being cases that were, were easy to sweep under the rug, it looked like something that had really happened. And that sort of gave me a good foundation. Now, I'm not, I don't remember when I first met Dick Hall, per se. It would have probably have been in the late 60s or early 70s, the best, the best I can say. Might have been at an a, a investigator's meeting, I don't know. I do know that Ted Blocher was at these meetings. And uh, I don't remember him going on an investigation with us, but the local group did do some investigation. After that, uh, I did meet Richard somewhere along the way, and... Um, played a role in uh, the, the demise of the original NICAP. Some of you may recall that when the special, when, when the Connolly Report was published uh, and then Blue Book was closed in December of 69, the sighting rate was dropping at that point. We were having access to the NICAP files. I knew that the sightings were continuing, but, the, but they were basically out of the general press. And it wasn't until uh, the summer of 1973, late summer of 1973, when uh, we're back. All of a sudden, there was a big influx of UFO sightings, starting, I believe, in the Georgia area, with state police and other policemen being involved in some of the sightings, and then sort of moving around on upwards up into the Midwest. At that point, it became clear, even to the rest of the world, that UFOs hadn't gone away. Of course, the premier cases in the fall of 1973 were the Hickson Park abduction in the Pasadena, Mississippi, and then the Colonial helicopter case near North of Columbus, Ohio. So these were making news, and the uh, local subcommittee was uh, 
trying to do as much as we can could at that point to um, save NICAP, as it were. With the decrease in sightings, the NICAP membership had dropped precipitously following 1969. NICAP was still publishing, but went through several different directors coming in, Stuart Nixon and then Jack Acuff. And uh, the uh, files of NICAP, Acuff would only take the filing cabinets themselves. He didn't want any of the other stuff. So John Carlson and uh, Richard Hall and a few other people and I basically tried to store these books and papers and other things that weren't part of the strictly part of the uh, the case file. Everything that wasn't in the case file, we tried to uh, store a, a building, the Fortian office, as it were, in uh, not too far from Maryland University in Maryland. But I would say it was during that period of time that I was getting to know Richard and, of course, other people as well. And uh, Richard had been frustrated uh, by a lack of funding. Once NICAP collapsed, essentially, there was no money for doing anything other than just publishing the, uh, the NICAP bulletin, or the investigator, I should say it was called. Probably about 1978, we were trying to figure out how to get some money into this field to do, to do real research. And I always thought, I always claimed it was Richard's idea to start an organization based on donations that would be provided an organization based on donations, which uh, could then uh, use these donations to fund various projects. Richard, on the other hand, said it was my idea. <laughs> Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You know, Neighbors, one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is one-and-one Internet. One-and-one Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s, so you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on one-and-one Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, one-and-one Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, one-and-one Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. 
This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast with Gene and Dick, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. As we fight over ideas, we're not going <laughs> to fight over the fact that on this week's episode, we are observing the passing of Richard Hall, and we have amongst our guests Kevin Randall, Bruce McAbee, Paul Kimball, Don Ecker, and Jerome Clark, and maybe even David Biedney and Gene Steinberg. Okay, Bruce, so at this point, what was the outgrowth of these discussions about a way to fund UFO investigation? Well, I was familiar with the way the National Science Foundation works. So I proposed essentially setting up something that would be a National Science Foundation for UFOs. Now the National Science Foundation is funded, of course, by Congress. We had to come up with some other source of funding and um, knew some people who were interested in putting money into an organization like that, and we were set up set up the fund for UFO research in such a way that a person would conceive of some project, presumably worthy project uh, related to UFO research, send in a proposal that had to uh, describe what the project was about, how it was going to be done, how it was going to affect ufology, and what, what the value would be, how much it would cost, and stuff like that. Basically, in parallel, uh, parallelism to uh, the way the National Science Foundation works. And we were fortunate to have a major supporter at the time, well, at least major from our point of view, who put $6,000 in the first year and the second year and had promised us, this lady had promised us $6,000 a year for an undetermined amount of time, but unfortunately she died. And uh, so we, but we, we did have this money to begin with, and that gave us the, uh, the ability to send out advertisements, publicize, and so on. We actually got some uh, contracts or signed contracts for various projects. And uh, each each person in the in the fund for research, there were five people, local people, that was myself and John Carlson and uh, Richard Hall and a couple others, and then ten people on the so-called national board. There's a local executive committee and a national board. This was set up, and everybody had to review this whatever the proposal was, and of course Richard's comment, commentaries and capabilities in the subject were invaluable when it came to deciding what was worthy and what was um, not worthy. And the fund basically started in 1979, and uh, by 1980 we were rolling along with having some, some projects and various projects put on by the fund. One of the, one of the most important ones we did was uh, had to do with the abduction study by uh, Elizabeth Slater, who was uh, uh, working on a single-blind contract uh, that had been written by Bud Hopkins and uh, Aphrodite Clamar. Aphrodite Clamar was the uh, person who did the hypnosis for the first first of uh, Bud's abduction clients. Anyway, that turned out to be an interesting study, and uh, of course the fund supplied some money to um, Stanton Friedman in the latter half of the 60s when uh, people wanted to know uh, what was going on with these MJ-12 documents and so on. Dick Hall continually acted as a uh, cautionary voice, I guess you could say, and uh, try and keep us from funding stuff that was too far out. Quick question about all this. Um, with so many people involved in this topic, they end up getting pulled in because of their own sightings. So question for all of you. Do you know if Richard Hall had some UFO experience early in his life? I don't Whoever know anything like that. Anybody? I, I never heard of it. Well, that's kind of interesting that he took such a, a deep interest in the topic uh, without having... Uh, oh, no, it's very interesting to get... Uh, it's very easy to get involved in this. 
simply as, a, as an intellectual puzzle, as a curiosity. I think the subject is inherently interesting. I've never seen a UFO. It wasn't a UFO sighting that brought me into the subject. Richard got interested in it in the middle 50s as a result of sightings, not by him per se, right. but what he read. And then when he, he needed a job after he got out of Tulane, so he thought it would be interesting to uh, take a job as a secretary for NICAP under Kehoe. Remember, Townsend Brown founded NICAP in 57, and Kehoe quickly, within a year, I believe, had, had kicked out Brown and uh, made him, <laughs> sort of made himself the director. And that was when uh, Richard Howell started. Uh, Richard told, has told me many times in the past that this whole thing was essentially a negative impact on the economics of his life. After he left NICAP, he was, he was paid to some extent since NICAP was totally a volunteer organization. He didn't have uh, full pay that you would expect for somebody in a secretary's job. But after he left NICAP, he attempted many times to get jobs and basically was told, uh, because he had UFOs on his resume, that um, he was basically told to get lost. He did work for the Congressional Research Service or something. I forget, it was an organization that uh, did abstracting for Congress. And he became very good at reading, let's say, a 100-page paper and boiling it down to one page with the key ideas, something like that. So, but, but a lot of the times when he tried to get, get work, he ended up on the short end of the stick. Now, Paul, when you intersect with him and you, you communicated with him quite a bit over, I guess, a 10-year period, in, in the piece that you wrote on, the, uh, on your blog, you indicate that you know, he was definitely in bad economic shape at the end of his life. I'm just wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit. Tell us about what you found when you visited him. I mean, I can I can kind of imagine how frustrated he must have been, right? Yeah, sure. Just before I answer that, David, the first thing yeah. I'd say is um, to anyone, and I think there's there's probably a lot of people, sort of casual listeners who are in the sense that they're casually interested in the UFO phenomenon, who might not know the name Dick Hall, and it's good that Kevin gave sort of the, the backstory there a bit of it, um, but I would say to those people, and I've had uh, people younger than I am call me up or email me or Facebook me or whatever, which is what kids do these days, and say, look, I'm interested in UFOs, what what should I do? And I, I steer them away from exopolitics, and I say, look, here's a list of books that you should own. If you don't own them at any age, um, you you can't claim to be a serious researcher as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, on that list, I would put Valet's Challenge to Science. I'd put uh, Jerry's The UFO Encyclopedia. I'd put Hynek's The UFO Experience. And Dick Hall's The UFO Evidence, maybe one or two others. That's how significant Dick Hall was, leaving aside anything else he did. I mean, that's an MVP season if you're a baseball player, that book right there. And that gets you into a ufological hall of fame if such, such a thing exists. So that's how important Dick Hall was to the serious research of the UFO phenomenon, which, and this is why I like Dick, he always differentiated from everything else that, that went along with it. Yeah, I had corresponded with Dick for almost a decade, ever since I did the, uh, even just before I did the Stanton Friedman film back in uh, 2000 and 2001. And it was actually Dick's book, The UFO Evidence, that sort of kind of gave me the idea to do the best evidence film, the top 10 UFO sightings, or as Dick, when he submitted me his list of his top 10, he called it 10 of the best. He refused to be pinned down. He liked me, so he agreed to help, but he refused to be pinned down and say, these are the 10 best. He said, these are 10 of the best. And if you ask me tomorrow, I'll give you 10 different ones, which I thought, you know, was probably the whole point. And so I went down and I first met him, I 
It's 2006 in uh, in Washington, and when my uh, camera guy and I got to his house, I mean, for anyone, and you hear this a lot from, and I I, I call them the bunkers. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a debunker if it's bunk and all that, but I think people within the UFO community know who I mean when I say debunkers. I use it in its pejorative sense. Jerry might call them pelicanists, and when you when you you hear them a lot of time, they'll say, well, so many people are in the UFO thing for money. And they're just raking it in, aren't they, off the poor rubes and everything. Uh, there's a guy in the Czech Republic now who goes on and on about that. And maybe one or two, um, Stan Friedman has managed to make a pretty good career out of it, which I don't think undermines his, his viewpoints at all. But, um, but Dick Hall was not one of those guys. Dick Hall was not in it for the money. And he lost most of, if not all, of his pension. Uh, I believe it was the Enron fiasco in the early years of the Bush administration. If it wasn't Enron in particular, it was something like that. I'm pretty sure it was Enron. And so when I get to Dick's place, you know, he's living in poverty. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And he was already um, a bit ill, um, but still sharp as a tack. I mean, I've got two hours of interview footage that, um, that one of these days in the not-too-distant future I will... I will get out there to folks on YouTube or wherever um, of Dick because I think they should see, besides the stuff that made it into the film, which I think was two or three 40-second clips, we, we talked at great length about other things. And as the interview went along, it was, it was so interesting to talk to him. I said, well, look, I'm just going to ask you questions about things like Roswell that aren't even on the, on the subject list of my film. And he was happy, happy to oblige because I, I just figured I wanted to get it on the record. But yeah, no, he was living in poverty. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no question. And I'm not saying every UFO researcher falls as hard as Dick did, but I was just shocked that somebody I considered, I mean, life can beat down anyone, I suppose, but somebody that I considered to be a giant of UFO research was in such a situation. And, you know, the great thing about Dick is and that combined with his health problems in later years, it never ground him down. You know, he just kept chugging along, which I always admired about him. Um, so, you know, if there's a, like I said, if there's a ufological Hall of Fame, Dick Hall is now in it. If it's a posthumous Hall of Fame, you know, he would be one of the ten or twenty people I would say in the history, the entire history of the study of the UFO phenomenon, that has made, you know, a true impact that will live on after them. I mean, sort of, the flavor du jour comes and goes, and speaking tours and all that sort of stuff. But Dick was, a, he's old school. You know, he's kind of like a baseball player would pull his socks up to his knees, wouldn't bat, no DH, and go out there and play the game every day. He's like Cal Ripken or Kyle Yastrzemski. He was that kind of guy within the UFO thing. Every day, unwavering, focused, always moving forward, even when so many people, say my age, would kind of think of him as a guy who never, you know, he stopped at some point. And they, that's a misrepresentation of what Dick and other researchers like Jerry and, and all these guys on the panel besides me stand for. They're always moving forward. It's just sometimes to us younger people, maybe it doesn't seem that way um, when we get uh, we have a few drinks in us, but how could you not respect Dick Hall? So I'm the guy, these guys all probably knew him better than I did, although I corresponded frequently with him. I met him twice. Um, but there's nobody in the UFO field that, uh, I mean, there's nobody on the planet I admire more than my dad, and there's nobody within the UFO field that I admired more than um, Dick Hall. Um, so I'm not saying he was, you know, he's my dad of the UFO field. I, I looked at him um, with genuine awe, you know, at the life he lived, the things he did, the way he carried himself, and also the way he went out. You know, something about the way you spend your final years tells you about who you are as a man. 
um, or a person, and I you know respect and admire the, the courage with which Dick Hall faced his final years, and they were not easy years for him. And given his contribution, they, they should have been easier. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You know, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk-free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We're talking about Richard H. Hall, who recently passed on. The guests include Jerome Clark, Don Ecker, Bruce Maccabee, Paul Kimball, Kevin Randall, in no particular order. Jerry, about the two volumes of the UFO evidence, can you tell our listeners a little bit about these books? Well, um, these are books put together, uh, the first volume of UFO Evidence was in 1964, and NICAP had planned this thing for some time, but it was, NICAP, as as Bruce has already indicated, was chronically short of funds, so it was always raising funds so that it could publish this really comprehensive overview of what the core evidence, the seemingly irreducible evidence for the UFO phenomenon was. And the idea was to print a whole bunch of copies of this thing, which was, you know, like a a large-sized book with a soft cover, and distribute copies to everybody in Congress and all kinds of influential movers and shakers. And the theory was 
that they would be intrigued enough, at least some of them would, to sit down and read this thing, and they would see that this was not a frivolous subject, that this was something really important, and there was this really strong body of evidence for it. Well, Dick was mostly responsible for putting that together, recounting the best cases. Uh, the, the book was full of charts demonstrating patterns and all kinds of things that nobody had really, really done before. It was really an attempt to really you know, kind of codify the data, not to write another flying saucer book, but to show the evidence to intelligent thinking trained people. Well, the ultimate idea, which NICAP was always favoring, was congressional hearings. Obviously, nothing came of that. The Air Force, you know, it didn't start uh, opening up Hangar 18 or anything like that. And so the the intended dramatic effect that the UFO evidence is supposed to have did not happen. History was not changed. But that book remains. So it's been reprinted once or twice since then. And uh, it's an enormously valuable book for what the core UFO phenomenon was about from 1963. Now, there's, it's also very conservative, it's, it, and it should be, but it may be arguably a little too conservative. For example, it rejects close encounter claims, and in particular ones where landings are reported and occupants sighted. They're dispatched in about two or three paragraphs toward the back. That represents NICAP's strategy of trying to be as respectable as possible as distancing itself from, you know, little green men. In 2001, a sequel, The UFO Evidence 2, was published by a reference house, and Dick wrote that book. It's a big, fat book, enormously interesting, enormously valuable, continuing what he did in the first volume, but taking it from 1964 into the turn of the new century. And here he he does deal with high strangeness cases, including crash retrieval claims. There are parts of that book, particularly in the crash retrieval section, that go a little bit beyond my boggle threshold. But these are things that reasonable people can, can disagree about, and, and Dick was certainly reasonable. And that is an enormously important book. And Paul was exactly right that the two bombs, the UFO evidence, are right up there. I put them, as I wrote somebody recently, the top book to me is, is Hynek's The UFO Experience, right under that of the two volumes of Dick Hall's The UFO Evidence. I can make a comment on uh, sure, go ahead. The, first, the first evidence. It was hoped that, well, the copies were made for everyone in Congress, and they were delivered sometime in 64. And as Jerry has pointed out, it was hoped that this would somehow lead to uh, congressional hearings. It didn't, so one could say, well, it didn't, have the, it didn't have the impact. But it was only two years later, or a year, a year plus later, that the 1965-1966 flap took place. A lot of people in Congress were still there, and... Whoever may have read the book in 1964 had that sort of as a background when in 1966 there was suddenly this uh, agitation to have hearings. Well, there were hearings in Congress about the UFO situation and how Project Blue Book didn't seem to be doing a very good job about it. And Project Blue Book, uh, the Air Force, therefore, should set up an independent investigation. I suspect that some of the work that had been done on the UFO evidence had an impact at that time, like two years after it had been published. I think that's undoubtedly true, and also you could add that, that the, 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 the scientists here and there just happened to pick up a copy and uh, got interested. You know, I mean, it did have an impact, but it wasn't the dramatic and immediate one that NICAP had hoped for. 
Right. That's about the time that Jerry Ford jumped into the fray, isn't it? Well, that was in 66 when uh, the Hillsdale, Michigan sightings. Right. Hillsdale, Dexter, Michigan sightings took place. It involved um, various credible people in the uh, in the uh, vicinity. Some firemen and uh, some defense directors. I forget exactly. Jerry probably remembers better than I do, but the point is that... Um, there was a big agitation in, in Congress, and Jerry Ford, uh, who was the uh, speaker, the uh, not the speaker, he was the uh, minority leader. Yeah, and lent his uh, support to this idea of directing the Air Force to, uh, to hold it. Which, which ultimately ended up bringing the Air Force in, J. Allen Hynek, and then what happened with the famous swamp gas explanation. So all of that, I think, is is connected. Certainly, the swamp gas stuff uh, was the the major press trigger that uh, caused so much uproar that the Air Force decided they better do something about it because swamp gas. Even even Hynek said years later, you know, that he had not really tried to imply that all the sightings were swamp gas, but there might have been a sighting or something since there was a, an area that was swampy. That shows what Hynek didn't know about swamps, I guess. In March, <laughs> you don't have much swamp gas coming up. You don't have the biological activity going on that would generate the gas. So anyway, so he was made a laughing stock. But what I'm saying as far as the, the uh, UFO evidence is concerned, People who had seen the UFO evidence beforehand had sort of a background on the subject, if not the congressmen themselves, then their associates, their aides, congressional aides would have had some some background on the subject, and uh, that could have had an impact on uh, their decision to uh, hold hearings related to Air Force incompetence. Okay, well, the one thing here is that the UFO evidence kept, in very large part, consistent with NICAP, which didn't explore the high strangeness cases. Right. And that's one of the he, things that they were often criticized for. Kehoe had uh, sort of said as a, as a executive policy that um, they would stay away from anything that made it look a little wacko from point of view back in those days. And uh, I guess NICAP may even have a little bit of trouble with the uh, 1964 Lonnie Zamora case first came out. NICAP initially tried to play down the occupant part of that fighting. And Coral Lorenzen and APRO were the ones who accepted it. Right, and in fact, they were critical of NICAP for its, you know, its reticence about these things. Well, that was the theme of an article that someone wrote, and I can't remember the name of the author or where it appeared. How close will NICAP let a UFO get? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that at all, Jerry? You know, I remember the title of that article because there was a lot of criticism. I remember particularly when it erupted in 19, April 1961 with the uh, Joe Simonton case in uh, Wisconsin, where Simonton claimed that this saucer landed on his property, and, he's, and he, these three little men had asked for a jug of water, and they'd given him these three pancakes. And this was a, and Ray Palmer, who was located in rural Wisconsin, not far from where this is supposed to happen, fanned the flames, and, and Dick was in the middle of this, and NICAP wanted nothing whatever to do with this case. Frank Carter, who was a local judge and a friend of Simonton's, wanted NICAP to study these cookies from outer space. <laughs> and, um, 
And anyway, it was it was just really, in many ways, uh, kind of a hilarious episode. The UFO phenomenon and also people's imaginations, whichever is at issue here, are pretty freewheeling and uncontainable. And uh, I think NICAP was trying to contain something. It was trying to domesticate a wild horse, <laughs> not very successfully. One of the issues probably was that Major Kehoe wanted to be politically correct. If you can be politically correct in the UFO field, he was afraid that if you became too extreme in the cases he reported, the people he wanted to reach, which of course was Congress, wouldn't take it seriously. Yeah, I think the word is respectable, actually, not politically correct. I think that Keel was already politically incorrect in embracing UFOs as extraterrestrial visitors, but he wanted to do that respectably. Mm-hmm. And Joe Simonson's little men with their cookies weren't respectable. I think what you had was an entire generation of people who wanted to put the best case forward um, to whether it was politicians, science, the general public. And, you know, any lawyer will tell you there's there can be any number of witnesses to, a, to a, say, a criminal case. You don't put them all on the stand necessarily. Some might have credibility problems. You know, you've got three previous convictions for drugs and it's a drug case. Perhaps you're not our best witness. You take your best case, you marshal it, and that's the one that you put forward. And I think that's one of the things that most frustrated Dick um, in later years is he saw disintegrating, not just in the general public, which might be understandable, you can't control that, but within the UFO research field itself. He saw the disintegration, I think, of, of everything that he and others had worked very hard to achieve, which was measure of respectability. And, and people, you know, some pelicanists, I'll use that term, <laughs> mock um, UFO researchers for trying to find that respectability. But if you take the subject seriously, and I think it should be taken seriously, then there should be a measure of respectability that goes with it. And I think that's one of Dick's great contributions, along with all those other people. Um, and Jim McDonald is another good example. Um, trying to make it respectable trying to put the best cases forward, trying to put the best case forward for people to take this seriously. Paul, I agree with everything you're saying, but my my point wasn't quite that. Maybe I didn't express myself very well. My point was <laughs> what people report in the UFO context being what it is, the kind of strategy that NICAP pursued was doomed to defeat simply because UFO and UFO witnesses don't act as NICAP would like to have them act. So when NICAP was confronted with a really exotic story, a landing, a close encounter with somebody who appeared to be perfectly credible, NICAP really had no strategy to handle that except to run as fast as it possibly could away from it. I, I agree with you, Jerry. Yeah. I have to understand that Richard grew up at a time when NICAP was being battered on both sides, being battered by the skeptics, of course but also being battered by the people who were way out, the uh, contactees. And Kehoe wanted to stay as far from the contactees as he could, while still admitting that if you're going to talk about UFOs at all, you're talking about something weird. So he said, I'm going to the weirdness. And Richard grew up under this system, you might say. Even today, the, the UFO subject is still not accepted by science or scientists. His approach... Uh, to some extent, is still valid today. Mainly, stick to the cases where there's little emotional involvement by the witness. Something is seen long enough so one or more of what the witnesses are have plenty of time to uh, see what they're looking to, to understand what they're looking at if they are able to describe it carefully later on. Of course, credible witnesses are the, are the ones that you want to stick to uh, and keep your case uh, as clean as possible. 
you almost like to divorce the case from the witness. If you get a lot of witnesses testifying to the same thing, and you have a photograph and you have radar tracking, it's not all just eyewitness testimony. There's other evidence. Fake Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We are talking with Bruce McAbee, Don Ecker, Jerome Clark, Kevin Randall, Paul Kimball, honoring the life of Richard Hall. So, Bruce, would you suggest that is what I'm talking about here, the fact that you're trying to get this objective evidence the personal problems or the high strangeness that some people observe wouldn't be part of that. It's strictly the evidence. Well, I don't know what you mean. High strangeness, I guess, it depends on what level of high you're talking about and <laughs> maybe how high the witnesses were at the time of the sighting. You know, Richard was, as I said, brought up in the era of the 50s when he had to keep at arm's length anybody who was talking about being on board, for example, traveling around in craft. Sightings like... Uh, Phyllis Boas in uh, Brazil in 58, I think that was. Afro talked about it, but NICAP had never mentioned it at all. I'm sure they had trouble with the Betty and Barney Hill case when it came through and uh, nevertheless had to absorb it one way or another, but I don't know if they even wrote about it at the time. Well, I think an important question then to ask uh, is that, you know, possibly there was a Richard Hall that had a public face via NICAP, but then there was also Richard Hall interested in the phenomenon. So, and I address this to anybody who might know, what did Hall one think? Of, one of the things that, that we, we seem to, to have lost here is we're talking about what NICAP's policies were in the 1960s, and yet when, when you talk about Richard Hall, you mm -hmm. see the evolution of his influence on it because in later life he he embraced an awful lot of the abduction phenomenon and, and, right. and I actually discussed this at times. He was more willing to accept some of the evidence offered by the abductees or the experiencers than, than I would be. So, so Dick Hall's mindset, you might say, evolved from a very conservative idea that, well, it's okay for the UFOs to be out there away from the witnesses. Uh, let's not get them close to the ground or the, the creatures from inside outside them to, to an attitude that, that uh, allowed him to look at the abduction cases as something that they deserve further study and further scrutiny. So, so the, the conservative of NICAP became irrelevant to Dick Hall later on, I guess. That, that was exactly along my, my, my question, Kevin, was that, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a fellow who, you know, if he didn't have a personal UFO experience, then he had to have a tremendous sense of curiosity about this. And a lot of people are curious about it. Not everybody's willing to devote their lives to this. 
it's pretty clear that uh, that Richard Hall was somebody who ended up really putting a major amount of his life's energy into trying to create some reasonable understanding of this. I, I'm really curious about what motivates someone to do that. And I understand, Jerry, that you know people get interested in this stuff. Anybody can get interested in it. That's one thing. But to be involved in it to the extent that he was is something that I think is a little un unusual. I'm not saying it's impossible. Oh, I, I don't think so. I, to me, Dick is an, fundamentally an intellectual and a scholar. And intellectuals and scholars choose all kinds of subjects to devote their lifetime's worth of inquiry into, including subjects far more arcane and more difficult to understand than, than UFOs. I think that Dick has to be seen fundamentally as an intellectual and a scholar. Yeah, I would just agree with what Jerry's saying there, and I, and I would do that. I would point to some of the areas, other areas he's interested in. Russ Estes said to me one time that, that he found that he had a very eclectic interest level. He got interested in a lot of different things, and, and you can see that in Dick Hall. We focus on his UFO research because that's what we're all involved in, uh, the, the commonality amongst the all of us here, but but Dick Hall was also very interested in the Civil War and very interested in history. So he had this eclectic mix of, of widespread interests, not just UFOs, but these other things that he was very, very interested in, and he contributed works to those fields as well. He was also very interested in philosophy. He was interested in the, you might say, the science of philosophy and the science of logic and bringing those sorts of gifts to bear on the UFO field. So it's not that he was just overly involved in UFOs or obsessed with UFOs, but he had an eclectic mix of, of intellectual interests, and, and that was make the guy fascinating. Wasn't his degree in philosophy? From yes. Tulane. Yeah, from he Tulane. With a, with a minor in mathematics. Now, there were two interesting divergences. <laughs> About 10 or 12 years ago, uh, right after UFO Magazine ended up taking business partners, a couple bought Major Kehoe's home in Luray, Virginia and turned it into a bed and breakfast. And Vicki and I had flown back to uh, Virginia and ended up staying there for a few days. And of course, one of the people that came by and we spent quite a bit of time with was Dick. And I will never forget Dick. Uh, one of my requests was because Major Kehoe was a personal hero of mine had taken me out to uh, the cemetery where Keyhole was buried. And then later, Vicky and I went down to Dick's home in Maryland, and uh, he allowed us to go through his files that he had there, everything you can imagine going back to the 1950s. And even at that time, it was obvious to me that this man had dedicated his life to pursuing this mystery, and uh, I never saw any indication that uh, that that quest ever left Hall. The other thing that uh, that I was fascinated with uh, Dick was his historical research into the Civil War. Now, originally coming from the East Coast, I had quite a bit of family that served in the uh, Union armies during the Civil War, and uh, I found it fascinating the research that uh, Dick had done on American women passing themselves as men during the war and uh, serving in uh, actually the armies of both sides. And of course, uh, Dick wrote very well received 
historical reference on that. And that's something that I, that I, of course, being so close to the UFO field, uh, I've often wondered if Dick received his due for that bit of historical detective work he carried out. But uh, it was a fascinating, another fascinating piece of, of literary accomplishment that, uh, that Hall accomplished. I'd like to make a comment on uh, people have asked the question, why would he get interested in the subject and stick with it for so long? I think he may have been intrigued by the, uh, the philosophical aspect of uh, studying this UFO problem, which uh, was well characterized by Ruppelt in his book when he says, what constitutes proof? I think that Hall may well have been intrigued by the fact that he had read about UFOs and he joined the NICAP and did work on it. and. For, as far as he was concerned, sufficient information for proof for him was there available. He could see, he could read about it. What he couldn't understand was, why wasn't this proof good enough for anybody else? And when he did the, the UFO evidence, he and Berliner and the other people, they didn't just write a history of sightings. They had the categories of things, and they tried to do things like collect, collect together all the pilot sightings, collect together all the sightings by policemen, if they had lawyers or other types of uh, doctors, you know, whatever, trying to make it look as if there was really good evidence there, and then ask the question, why don't you believe it? And I think from his philosophical point of view, he he was puzzled. Why doesn't this effort and all these cases amount to anything when it comes to the uh, public acceptance of the subject? And that may have been what sort of kept him at this for years, trying to come up with a way of presenting the evidence so it would be convincing. I'm going to guess that his... Uh thoughts about the way the mainstream media treat the topic were probably not very positive, eh? <laughs> it's entertainment. His, I, I know his views um, at great length about how he viewed television documentaries <laughs> at, at great length. Um, and uh, one of the things that I'm proud of stuff in my career is that he agreed to participate in Best Evidence, and then when I sent him a copy of it, he actually thought it was well done. Um, and, uh, you know, he had one or two um, things that he would have changed, but he said, no, on the whole, it's fine. I know that, you know, he cooperated with a few others over the years, but by and large, I think, and he, I think he was right, too, that, you know, 95% of UFO-related documentaries are unmitigated garbage that are designed to sell genes or whatever the network is peddling between. Between, um, you know, for their commercial breaks. So that's my part of the mainstream media. I, I think in Dick's case that bled over to, to everything else, but I all, you know, the, the print media and whatever. I also think that was entirely justified given the way things have gone over the last 20 or 25 or 30 years. But the interesting thing about Dick is, and I did talk to him about this, he didn't just blame the so-called main, mainstream media. He said, you know, you have to look inward at why we get the coverage we do. And he said, you know, part of the blame is on the UFO community, uh, in the sense not not of the serious researchers. He wasn't, you know, he said, look, guys like Jerry Clark and Kevin Randall, not, not, not our fault. But he would say, look at, look at who the mainstream media has to look at out there. And they can pull a Stephen Greer over here, or, you know, uh, in the old days, a George Adansky from over there. You know, it's not unreasonable uh, to think that the mainstream media would be attracted to those stories as much as they might be the serious stuff. So he, I think he understood the complicated relationship that the media would have with the subject. There's no question he was hard on the media, but he was equally hard on researchers, which is why I think he, to the chagrin of some of my younger friends, continually, um, say on UFO updates or something, would continually push um, ad nauseum 
for a serious scientific study. He would back down things like massive air wars in the 1950s between flying saucers and uh, UFOs that would be raised. And he would say, you know, we have to keep reminding people that this stuff is silliness, and we have to keep reminding them, even if they won't listen, it has to be out there, that the serious stuff exists, and that's what they should be looking at. That's our responsibility, and whether they report it or not, we can't change that, but we have to keep doing that. And I think that's what disappointed him in his later years, is fewer and fewer people um, were, were actually concerned with doing that. In other words, he would have gone apoplectic over the words, credibility doesn't matter, that somebody had once mentioned. <laughs> on our show and he, he would go unnamed if he had a shotgun in his house and I don't know if he did or not but he might have gone and, and loaded it up yeah um, he, I, I have no doubt that Dick would have said anybody who would say those words should be hit over the head with a shovel that's just been used to dig their own grave and rolled into the grave you know and I would agree with him <laughs> anybody would say credibility doesn't matter there's no point in listening to him one thing that Dick and I often discussed because both of us have been a long, you know, I've been around, I was younger than Nick, but I've been around since the mid-50s in this field. And one thing that we had discussed because we had this kind of long historical overview was the tendency of ufology, using the term very broadly, not referring to the august body we have assembled here, but just the unwise mass of ufology. The tendency to repeat the same mistakes, to drive down 90 miles an hour down the same dead end streets, and you would try to say to these people, look, this idea was around in 1955, it didn't go anywhere, here's the problem with it, and then they accuse you of being dogmatic and rigid and close-minded and maybe even a CIA agent. And people like Dick and me went through this a lot in the last, particularly in the last 10, 15 years. It's just exhausted us, and I know that it was particularly discouraging to him. I've got a few more years to go, I hope, but Dick was nearing the end of his run, and he just saw that there were a bunch of buffoons who were rising to the surface. I bowed out of research a couple of years ago, and I wrote a paper uh, about my time in, in active research and in the field. And one of the uh, critiques that I put in there is that the majority of people that attached themselves to this field have absolutely zero historical reference as far as what has transpired in the last 60 years of research, something that uh, Jerry Clark was just mentioning. And the fact of the matter is that's absolutely true. You can see it practically in every corner of UFO research. And uh, the upshot was that uh, I, I also caught a lot of hate for pointing that out. There was a lot of uh, discontent that uh, how dare you, who are you to tell us that we don't have any historical reference points for this field. But the fact of the matter is, that's exactly what has happened <laughs> with so many people. They don't have a clue what has gone on before, and they are clueless about what's going on right now. Uh, I think you make the point. We are going to break very briefly, and we'll rejoin Paul Kimball, Kevin Randall, Jerome Clark, Don Ecker, and Bruce McAbee on the other side of the Paracast. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? 
We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Welcome back to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are honoring the life and times of Richard Hall, UFO researcher, historian, philosopher, with Bruce Maccabee, Paul Kimball, Kevin Randall, Don Ecker, Jerome Clark, all of whom knew him well. I can't say I knew him well, and in a sense, I'm sad that we didn't. I know that we tried to get him on the Paracast, David, what, a year or two ago? It was pretty early on, actually, right right after we started. So this will be back in 2006. Right. And we got a decent letter from him, but he said, I'm just not doing this stuff anymore. I didn't realize at the time probably he wasn't in very good health. And maybe that was one of the reasons. Not because my name was attached to it. I don't think he ever really held that against me because of the things that happened in the 60s. As I said, I kind of feel now, as I listen to you guys, rather disappointed I didn't get a chance to really communicate with him more because we hadn't really talked about any deep subjects. That little factor of the 60s certainly prevented that kind of conversation. And when we talked again in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of time to talk, a lot of time for conversation. And we really didn't stay in touch, and that's how it goes. Let's talk about his his book, The UFO Evidence. I'm curious, gentlemen, not having read this these books, and I didn't, what did he feel were some of the truly compelling cases? Now, Paul, you brought up that he submitted some cases for you. He said, well, these are 10 of the best. Right. Do you remember what cases he might have brought up as feeling were, were highly compelling that you didn't have in the documentary? Um, it's a good question. I'm at home. I was actually going to get down to the office today because I still have everybody's top ten list, you know, with dozens of researchers into the computer. His, I can't remember. I can tell you th- there was um, one case. He thought the Cash Landrum case, which wasn't in my film, was very compelling as something strange. I, he didn't say it was an extraterrestrial from Zeta Reticuli, but he said that was largely because of the personal experiences, I think, and the effects. Um, I do recall him saying the Cash Landrum case was, was of great interest to him. And I know he, um, of all the cases that, that we had in our top ten, which were the ones I was asking him about, the two that seemed to resonate the most with him were the Rendlesham case and the Malmstrom Missile Base case. Mm. And in both cases, I think that's because of the military sort of dimension to it, both of them occurring on military bases, the witnesses or the people being involved, being military, official investigations that we may or may not (laughs) know all about uh, coming afterwards. From my chats with Dick, those were the kinds of cases, at least to me that he found the most interesting and I know that he uh, that he thought Rendlesham it, it was either one, two or three on his list of ten of the best that he gave me I know he thought very highly of the Rendlesham case and the people involved so that one definitely was high on his list well, partially was because he actually got to meet the people involved yeah, yeah. and put together some little meetings 
what's his name, who wrote the uh, document that turned up? Peter Robbins? Charles Hall. Oh, Charles Hall. Hall. Right. Hall, I think for the first time he ever showed his plaster casts of the Depressions was at one of our fund meetings. Anyway, Richard got to meet the original people, so... Halt is interesting because I interviewed him for the film, too, and he's a very cagey guy, although I think he's becoming a bit less cagey, but he's very careful. Like Dick, you know, he he had a a view of the mainstream media. He was very cautious. That's the best way to put it. And um, of UFO researchers as well. I mean, Halt had been inundated for years by everybody from the serious ones to the cuckoos, um, calling him up and tracking him down and asking him questions. And I, I do absolutely remember that Halt specifically mentioned Dick Hall because I think it was through Dick that I had sort of um, not been introduced to Halt but got his contact information and everything and Dick had written to Halt recommending me and saying look this is a guy that you can talk to and Halt had nothing but good things to say about Dick and he said look considering some of the people that I've dealt with um, you know dealing with a guy like Dick Halt was gold I paraphrase of course but uh, that's the kind of thing I think you know, Dick inspired that kind of confidence in uh, in witnesses as well. But even people like Halt, who who were careful about who they would talk to and what they would say when they did talk to them. Mm-hmm. How did he feel about? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm we're getting the, the the picture here that later in his life he became a little more open towards looking at uh, some of the more profoundly odd aspects of the UFO situation. How did he feel ultimately about the abduction scenario? Because you know, you. you uh, forget who it was uh, that brought up uh, Betty and Barney Hill. Um, and I was going to ask, what did he think of that case? Now, obviously, early on, he, he didn't want us to pay any attention to those things. But what about later in his life? I mean, what did he feel was potentially some of the mystery behind abductions? Did he express well, that to any know, of you? In 19... It was in 1981, when Missing Time was published. That was sort of a change in the paradigm of ufology. Previous year, they had had a change in the paradigm related to crash UFOs when the Roswell incident was published. But now, when Missing Time was published, we had proposals for research on abduction stuff. Richard went right along with these. He didn't he didn't poo-poo the whole thing and try to prevent us from funding this stuff. I mentioned earlier the single blind study by Lisa Slater of uh, I think it was eight abductees that had appeared. Some of them were in Bud's book, in which he found that. Uh, they uh, were all diverse people, all, none of them was a clinical case, and yet they all had this heightened sense of paranoia, and, uh, and, and she couldn't understand why. She had simply been asked, is there anything common uh, in the characteristics or personalities of these eight people, I think it was, that, were, that Aphrodite Clamar had recommended to her, and she went through a complete battery test on all these people and wrote a report on it. And then she was told that they were all abductees, and she wrote a second report saying that Florida, uh, she was flabbergasted, had no idea that that was the situation. They had been told not to tell her anything about um, their, these experiences. And the point about that report is, um, I think that may well have convinced Dick that this was real. In later years, the late 80s, 90s, I seem to recall that he um, actually worked with a number of abductees, the two ladies who are featured in a book called Connections, were at a number of uh, fund uh, meetings in the, in the Washington, D.C. area. Some were put by the fund. The Fourier organization both worked together in some some meetings once a year or something like that. Bottom line, I think, is that uh, Dick basically accepted that as real by the time, by, probably by the, uh, the late 1990s. Were there specific cases or specific areas that he really felt were just total nonsense that he really, even at the end, 
didn't want to spend any time with, didn't want to pay any sort of of, uh, of attention to? Well, my best guess would be anything related, anything similar to the contact T aspect, uh, as opposed to abductee. Going back in the 80s, I coined the phrase that separates the two of them. Contactees have a good time, abductees don't. And although there have been some abductees in recent years who have sort of indicated that they're happy it happened, I guess. And in most cases, they wish it hadn't. I think uh, Dick would have stayed away from any case where the person was uh, going out and publicizing oh. widely and so on. Dick also detested uh, John Keel and uh, these kinds of uh, occult approaches to the UFO phenomenon, which he thought were just indefensible pretty much on any level and were products of uh, sloppy thinking and um, and uh, the absence of a critical filter. And um, he was he was an early and vocal and articulate critic of that approach, which began to emerge in the later 1960s. And he fought it to the nail of all his life. He also would regularly contribute to the UFO Updates email site and be deeply critical of some of these young hotshots who are coming up with just the most manifestly outlandish theories, and I hate even to use the word theories, that um, they often thought were fresh and bright ideas and were being resisted by elderly flatulents like Dick and me. But we're in fact just recycling crap that had been around probably since you know the Borderland Sciences Research Associates in the 1940s and uh, M.K. Jessup and George and Williamson in the 1950s. You know, it's just the same old crap, but these guys, as we were saying earlier, just simply know no history. They don't have a critical filter, and so this stuff just keeps coming back. Uh, it should be pointed out that, uh, as far as I can tell, Henry Richard was a hardware man, uh, that which meant that he did not agree with these theories uh, that assigned UFO sightings to uh, mental states of the witnesses or whatever. Like Valley. I'm not sure what he thought about. I think he, think he thought Valerie was a bit over the edge in this control theory, but of course Valerie never comes right out and says who's doing the controlling. It could be people in hardware devices, I suppose. But anyway, that meant that uh, any, any, any aspects of the UFO settings that they could look like it could be explained strictly by mental states of the witnesses were things that he wasn't really interested in. He wanted to know that there was something solid there. Took a bullet and shot, if you shot a gun at this object, a bullet would bounce off the way somebody did in the 50s. I forget the exact sighting, but I'm pretty sure that was his impression. He was a hardware man, and I think that's why we got together. We got along so well. I was never into a big argument over Richard over the nature of, uh, of UFO objects. I think his, um, I think that's exactly right. I think two other things that he had um, intense scorn for were deep-rooted conspiracy theorism. Um, he didn't completely, you know, sort of say there aren't conspiracies or there at least aren't there isn't government secrecy. I don't think anybody could say that with a straight face. But when he would, I know in particular, I asked him about Rich Dolan's book, UFOs in the National Security State, and one of the things in that book that most bothered me, which was Dolan's speculation about Jim McDonald. And, um, you know, whether McDonald's suicide was actually um, perhaps the government taking him out using any one of a number of means. It's the only time I actually, well, that's not true. I heard Dick laugh 
laughed twice. Um, I won't tell you what the other time was, but um, but he actually laughed and he <laughs> said, you know, look, anybody who would write that Jim McDonald was anything other than um, you know a brilliant but troubled man who eventually committed suicide uh, doesn't know what they're talking about, and and that would carry through to anything that would sort of bring up that kind of conspiracy theorism, which would tie into the other thing that he the hated, he detested, and this is why we um, corresponded a lot, exopolitics. Um, mm. He hated exopolitics, he hated exopoliticians, he hated everything about them. Well, he didn't hate them personally, but you know, he hated what they were doing to UFO research. And uh, those those would be the two things that he and I would have talked about the most in terms of things that drove him up the wall. Well, you know, we've heard recently, David and myself, from one of the lead purveyors of the exopolitics religion. And so I understand totally what mm. Richard Hall felt. Well, but along those lines, what did he feel about the issue of government secrecy? Like you just pointed out, uh, uh, Paul, I mean, w we know something's being withheld. What did he feel about the nature of it? I did ask him about that, and he said, "There's no, you know, the Malmstrom case, the Rendlesham case. Though, there's no question." He said, "Look, there are there are things that were being withheld. Um, to me, at least, and maybe I, I, you know, these other guys have known him longer and probably better than I did, I guess. Um, but to me, at least, he he never said, well, they're withholding crashed alien spacecraft or um, you know, little gray men in, in pickle jars or whatever. He never went that far. He said they're withholding something. There is secrecy. Um, it should be brought out into the light. Um, but who knows what it is? You know." I know he clashed frequently, for instance, with Brad Sparks, who's another researcher that um, I respect, and so did Dick, um, and Brad respected Dick. But, you know, they had frequent disagreements about who was the most involved in the secrecy. And I know Brad would, would always trot out the United States Air Force. That That's Brad's thing. It's the U.S. Air Force, Air Force, Air Force. And Dick said, well, that's part of it, but, you know, there, there are a number of other acronym agencies out there that that are involved in the, uh, in the UFO phenomenon. The thing with Dick, and he would get upset with Brad because Brad wouldn't take a, you know, a wider view of where the cover-up or what a conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, might come from. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the line for Dick would be to say that he had no real use for things like cosmic water gates. I think Dick would look at it, and I think he can read his writings, and he would say, not everything was being released, not everything was out there, but that doesn't mean that there are the crashed flying saucers have been recovered and being withheld from us. So he was careful about drawing conclusions, David. So, and I think reasonably so, even as he would say, we don't know everything and we should continue to try and get it out. Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. The No Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. 
We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is one and one Internet. One and one Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on one and one Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, one in one Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, one and one Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Paul Kimball, Bruce Maccabee, Kevin Randall, Jerome Clark, Don Ecker. We're honoring the memory of Richard H. Hall. And as we see, very much a UFO traditionalist in the sense of nuts and bolts and spaceships. And if there's secrecy, well, maybe it's not as deep and conspiratorial as some might think. So, Gene, yes. Back in the early 90s, when I was doing my first radio show, UFOs Tonight, I was able to interview Dick on one of the programs. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to have to locate that uh, particular show because it was rather funny. I was in awe of Dick Hall back in those days because of his long tenure in the field and the associations that he met. And anyway, this is a rather humorous story. When he came on the show, I gave this long and very laudatory introduction to Dick Hall. And I guess I made it sound at the time like Dick was teetering on the edge of his grave then. And I'll never forget, he got pissed off. And he said, wait a minute. I'm not that old. <laughs> and I started laughing. And I said, oh, my God, Dick, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it goes back to the 50s. Well, I didn't mean to insult you. He he got very prickly about that. And, I, and in retrospect, I looked at that and I really laughed at Dick. But, you know, he was he was one heck of a guy. There's no getting around it. You know, we're talking about hardware and spaceships and stuff. I don't really put the focus on that. I put it in a broader context. I think so what Dick was insistent on was the events part of the UFO phenomenon as opposed to the experience UFO phenomenon. And if you look at the experience UFO phenomenon, you're looking at CE2s, you're looking at uh, radar visuals, you're looking at landing traces, you're looking at a lot of kind of hard evidence that are almost certainly tied to somebody else's technology. Now, those things are eminently investigatable, and you can prove that something extraordinarily anomalous happened. If you're dealing with a technology that doesn't exist on Earth, you're probably dealing with a technology that was created somewhere else in the galaxy in what appears more and more to look like a densely populated universe. But if you want to look at the experience phenomenon, people's crazy stories, many of these crazy stories told by people who are to all appearances sane and sincere, but are really outlandish and don't really reduce to any kind of coherent 
nature of an otherworldly intelligence, but nonetheless seem to be real, at least to the people who have the experiences, then you're dealing with something that is almost impossible to deal with in any coherent fashion. And if you start your theorizing with people's crazy stories about men in black and monsters or uh, Mothman or whatever you want to talk about that fascinated John Keel and Jack Valet and people like this, you're going to be dealing with a kind of uh, primitive supernaturalism eventually because it's very hard to think of any other way to make any sense of this. We don't even really have a vocabulary. Dick understood all along that there was this core group of reports that you could document as events. If you could document they were events, you could document that they were extraordinary. And if you could document that in the absence of any other explanation that made sense, you were you were dealing with extraterrestrial visitation. But I don't think he started with the idea of extraterrestrial visitation. He worked backward, which is in a, in a very rigorous and scientifically sound way. Where, where a crunch comes when it comes to sightings, and that is any explanations. If somebody reports a sighting, uh, you have to accept what the person says, or if there's some documentary evidence, accept that as well. But then we try to come up with what the explanation might be, and this is where science actually comes into the process. Uh, you have to decide what the characteristics of the sighted object are. Richard understood that very well, and he also understood that the uh, skeptics very often got away with garbage explanations, and the press and the scientific community would never check up on it. If there was an explanation, uh, you know, any explanation is better than none sort of aspect. It wins the propaganda battle, you might say. doesn't win the science battle. And uh, I think Richard knew this. This is part of the reason why he stuck at it, trying to come up with, could there be a, a magic case that is so strong it can't be shot down by any reasonable means at all? He um, amassed a bunch of these cases in his 1964 book, at least from his point of view. So uh, I have to ask, what did he think of the Roswell case? As far as the Roswell case is concerned, I never, I can't say that I ever got a clear reading from Richard as to whether he accepted that as true or questionable. I think probably he took an agnostic stand towards it. Not that it had been disproved, and I don't think he bought the mogul hypothesis. But whether he would have said it was definitely proven or not, I don't know. You know, there's obviously still argumentation running around all over the place about that. And um, Carrie and Schmidt's new version of uh, Witness to Roswell uh, ups the ante even more uh, towards the reality side. But uh, I don't really know what uh, Richard's feelings on that were. Well, I, I think one of the things we can look at is the Fund for UFO Research paid Carl Flock to take a look at the Roswell case and came up with a very negative view. And in reviewing much of what Carl had to say about the Roswell case, we find out, we find gaps in what he reported for example he he rejects the Frankie Rowe story because he talked to three firefighters who were in the Roswell Fire Department in 1947 and they didn't know anything about the story well I, inter I re-interviewed one of those guys not too long ago and got basically the same thing that he that, that Flock reported until I asked a specific question which is did you know Dan Dwyer who was Frankie Rowe's father and at that point the guy told me yeah I knew I knew Dan very well and that's when the colonel came in to the fire department told us not to go out there that they didn't need us they had their own fire department and we we wouldn't we wouldn't be required and we weren't to go out there but Dan had gone out there in his own car which explains why there is no log of a fire run by the Roswell Fire Department out there but also 
also explains how Dan Dwyer got out there. And going through Carl Flock's work on this, and, and it would be no way that Dick Hall would know this, I find a number of those things where he seemed to take it to the point he got the answers he wanted, but never asked the additional questions. So that, I think, feeds into some of this agnostic idea that, well, Roswell's very interesting, but it hasn't been proved yet. And I, I think we we can move beyond that if we if we eliminate some of the skeptical counter-arguments because they're not valid. The only thing that I could say about what Richard's impression was, my own impression is that I was convinced by Jesse Marcel way back in 1981. <laughs> I understood that. I just wanted to make the point because the fund for for UFO research and, and, and Dick was an important part of the fund. You can look at it from two points of view. One is the Carl Flock contribution is negated by some of the bad information in it, but you can also look at it from the point of view the fund was so interested in getting to the truth that they would fund a researcher to investigate it who would come to the negative conclusion. Uh, it's been a long time since uh, we ran that through the uh, executive committee, but it seems to me that what we funded them for was all this interviewing and tape recording of witnesses. The intent was to get it, and that ended up being this Roswell, Recollections of Roswell, I believe. Mm -hmm. Roswell in perspective for that. What the, uh, Stan Friedman and Don Schmidt also got some of the, the funding from the fund to produce the, the videotape. And I, in fact, I, I submitted some of the tapes as well. But what Carl had done was something beyond that. Carl went back and re-interviewed some of the witnesses, but the fund produced his Roswell in perspective, which eventually came his, uh, Roswell Inconvenient Facts in the Will to Believe, published by Prometheus. There were a number of different tracks that the fund uh, funded. I don't think we knew what he was going to come up with as his final result that he published. At the time, we, we approved some amount of money, which I don't recall, for investigation. Which is yes. the best way to you know, give money out and conduct an investigation. I, I asked Dick about Roswell when I interviewed him for best evidence. It, it certainly wasn't on one of, one of his top ten of the ten best cases or whatever, but I, I, like I said, I talked to him about a bunch of stuff because I had him there, so I asked, and I have it on tape somewhere, and he had, Bruce is absolutely right. He was agnostic on it, and I think, you know, Kevin raises a good point about the skeptics or debunkers or whatever you want to call them, but, you know, Dick might have raised um, an equally good point that said for every one of those, you'll have a Gerald Anderson or a Frank Kaufman or whomever. I think, and Jerry, you know, maybe you know, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong here, but I think Dick would have agreed with my assessment is that it's a mess and that there are better cases out there from an evidential point of view to make, and I think that's always, like I said earlier, what Dick was trying to do in his entire career was to find those best cases, more than just the 10 that I had, of course, but to find that core group of cases that you could make a presentation that there was truly something anomalous going on. And I don't, I honestly don't think he considered Roswell to be one of those cases. Not that he dismissed it, but that it was just confused and a mess and there was so much conflicting testimony and, and everything that he, he just would have said, as, as I do, you know, let's move towards a case like the RB47 case or, or something like that. Um, because that's a cleaner case and we need to marshal those cases. So he didn't dismiss it, but I, but I certainly don't think he accepted it as proven. And, and I would go along with I would go along with what you say, Paul, on that as well. That that the, the the Roswell case has become such a mess because of all the conflicting testimonies and all the all the people who are leaping on the on the bandwagon. You're absolutely right. I don't think there's any question that, as I see it, I see. I think Paul and Dick and I probably see it pretty much the same way that the, the bunkers really have lost the argument. 
but that doesn't mean that the proponents have won it because the stakes in this are so high. Yeah. And there are problems with an event, something like this vanishing into history. And I don't mean just in people's distant memories and their intriguing testimony, but I mean in your ability to demonstrate that something that history changing happened. There's no evidence that history changed because of an event like that which would have changed history. There's also an absence of, you know, the extraordinary documented physical evidence. Now, it doesn't mean that these are insurmountable problems, but it does make Roswell a very intriguing historical mystery, but not a great UFO case, at least not yet. Yeah, well, maybe I not ever uh, because of the witnesses are all mostly gone anyway. Yeah, you know, I hate to say this, but men start to realize at about 40 that we're not so young anymore. I think it hits us when we start hearing about the importance of prostate health. Well, your prostate is right down there near your bladder. So if it's unhealthy, it can affect your urine flow and even intimacy. So I see my doctor for checkups and I take a supplement called beta prostate. Beta prostate is made with plant sterols that target the prostate. That's really powerful stuff. How powerful? Well, you'd have to take over a hundred saw palmetto capsules to get the same healthy benefits found in one capsule of beta prostate. The choice is easy. Take better care of your body and try beta prostate risk free for 30 days. You've got nothing to lose. Just call 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. With beta prostate, your satisfaction is guaranteed or you get your money back. Call now. 1-800-625-5535. That's 1-800-625-5535. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast talking with Kevin Randall, Paul Kimball, Jerome Clark, Don Ecker, Bruce Maccabee, honoring the life and times of Richard Hall and discussing many of the cases that he explored, many of the opinions he held. Maybe I'll put that question to you, Kevin. 
have we reached the point now where we can pretty well give up on any further really significant, meaningful developments on Roswell? No. I think there, there are some interesting avenues that need to be pursued. And I think we need, if, if we're interested in the case, we need to try to clean it up. And everybody's right. We've got the Frank Kaufmans, we've got the Gerald Andersons running around. But the thing we have to remember is who exposed them as the liars they are. And that was, that was members of the UFO community continuing their investigations. I think Roswell is fundamental because if you take a look, and, and Jerry kind of alluded to this, if you take a look at the UFO phenomenon in 1947 and what was going on, you see all kinds of articles in the newspaper about, from, from the governmental officials, scientists, military officers, we don't know what's going on. We have no clue. It might be this. It might be that. And suddenly, on July 9th, you get a story that says, well, uh, the Army and Navy moved today to suppress stories of flying saucers flying through the atmosphere. Why suddenly on July 9th did they suddenly care? So we see a sudden shift in the official policy toward UFOs at the highest levels the day after Roswell is announced as, as an alien spacecraft. But it has become a very complex case simply because of the numbers involved and all the people who, who uh, uh, hitched the wagon to the, to the Roswell case who turned out to be less than credible. And so we've got a real mess there. And, and maybe it's time to put it on the back burner for a while and look at some of the other important cases. And, and, and you know, Paul has mentioned some of them, but I think Level Land is an extremely important case. The, the interaction of the UFO with the environment, the number of people who uh, reported it independently, the, the number of law enforcement officers involved, and things like that. And I think, I think Dick would look at the Level Land case as one of those important cases because we have multiple chains of evidence and we can look at it from a very scientific point of view and maybe learn something about, about UFOs. And if, and if not, maybe something about the human psyche yeah I, I know another one too Kevin that he would uh, that was on his list and I do recall it now was the um, the 1973 coin helicopter case that that he thought highly of so yeah you know I think I he would agree with you on on that on finding different cases could I ask Kevin a question um, Please. Kevin what other crash retrieval case if any other than Roswell do you think might have some real payoff. I suspect the event that took place in Las Vegas in April of 1963, and I, I hesitate to say it, there may be some payoff in Kecksburg, but Kecksburg is beginning to suffer from the same problems as Roswell. Too many witnesses coming forward too late after the, there's been so much, much publicity about it. Roswell would be the granddaddy of the UFO crash cases. Those two may provide us with some additional information. But if you look at the list of number of UFO cases on any sites that we talked about exopolitics uh, a while ago, I think they've got nearly 300 UFO crashes. This is preposterous. And mm -hmm. if they were raining out of the sky and that kind of numbers, <laughs> we'd have all the physical evidence we need. We have to look at it from that point of view. I'd be very worried about the quality control of those spaceships, too, if they're crashing all over the place. I mean, even we don't do that badly, and we've had some problems here on Earth. I have a, a question for you gentlemen who knew him for so long. Given that uh, Dick's credibility was that he, he just had total integrity, scientific integrity about this, did he ever tell any of you any stories about having people in the military, in the government, come to him? and potentially tell him things that they might not have wanted to be widespread. 
Do any of you remember anything like that from him? I I cannot Most say. I can think of Richard talked about some one time in the middle 60s in NICAP. Pretty sure this is right. Some Air Force, somebody had showed up at the office and indicated they want to recruit him for the CIA. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, he did have some interaction with the CIA guy at one point. I just don't remember the details. At NICAP, yes. Yeah. Really? Huh. Yeah. I was told at one point, and I'm trying to recall now who it was that told me, that uh, routinely representatives of CIA would go in weekly to NICAP to see what interesting cases or reports they might have gleaned. Now, I, I cannot... Uh, I cannot swear to that in a, in a court of law, but but I was told that by somebody uh, years ago that allegedly uh, was in the know. Now I don't know if anybody else might have heard something similar. Yeah, but. I, think, I think that's consistent with what I said, uh, in the sense that they. My recollection is they wanted him to report to them, save them the trouble of sending somebody over all the time report good cases to them or something like that. I forget the exact details. So far as I know, he never he never did it. But um, uh, I think they had made that attempt to, uh, well, whether they sent somebody over every week or whatever, I don't know. Well, if they send someone over every week, is this somebody that identified himself as from the CIA or one of the supposed volunteers or what, Bruce? I wouldn't know. That was before I was there. Okay. Well, if I was going to speculate... I would suggest it was Carl Flock because he was on the uh, subcommittee for the Washington yes. D.C. area, and, and he also has an association with the CIA. I don't know how important that association is. I don't know exactly what he did with it. But if I was going uh, to guess, that would be my guess. See, uh, be, there's a time. There may be a time problem here in the sense that my gut feel is that this approach by the CIA was in the middle '60s. Carl, I remember him from. Uh, the local subcommittee in the, maybe it was earlier 69, but 70, 71 sort of, seven years but, after but, the event that Richard was talking about. Yeah, understood, and, and, and Richard didn't go along with it. What I'm suggesting, well, Carl Locke then, then took on that role that, that Richard refused, which would be a good, which would say a lot about the integrity of Richard Hall. Well, you know, of course, folks, that during the 60s and 50s, there were always those rumors that NICAP had connections that were too closely aligned to the government because a lot of ex-government people became members of the board of NICAP such as a former director of the CIA. So any of you guys have any feelings about that? Well, of course, that was Kehoe's doing. He was, he was intentionally trying to get high-powered people to be part of the board. Helen Coder, the first director of the CIA, was on the board until 61 or 62 when he resigned, I guess it was, somewhere on there. Uh, but they had a number of uh, military, high military people, a general, uh, as I recall, and they had. And you've got to remember that a lot of those guys, a lot of those original high-level military people, had been classmates of Kehoe. Let's not forget that Kehoe was a graduate of the Naval Academy, and he knew all those people back in the very early twenties, and grew, basically grew up with them. Right. He was just trying to get his buddies on the board. Well, Keogh had all kinds of contacts. You know, Don's absolutely right that he was that he was military guy, an Annapolis graduate. He was also a guy who knew his way around the Pentagon, and everybody knew Don Keogh. Now he was an aviation writer for magazines like True Magazine, etc. Before he also wrote a lot of pulp fiction and stuff like that. 
And he he was Charles Lindbergh's aide when Lindbergh made right. his historic flight right. and came back. He, as a matter of fact, one of his early books was about uh, Lindbergh. Right. So flying with Lindbergh, nineteen twenty-seven. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, you're right. You're right. Bottom line is, it's not surprising that the Board of Control had a lot of people in it. There were high-powered military people and so on. One of the quickest ways to raise your credibility is bringing in a military officer. Uh, a high-ranking military officer, well, Colonel so-and-so or General so-and-so, and that that right there creates a, a level of, of credibility, With, knowing nothing else about the guy, the fact that he reached high military rank. And so Kehoe had an in with those guys, and it was a good way of, of raising the credibility of the organization, not unlike MUFON today with their with their board of uh, uh, scientific advisors, PhDs. It's, it's a good way to raise your credibility. But then in the 60s, Kehoe was not running the organization in a way that would allow it to sustain itself financially and was spending a lot of time trying to pressure Congress and so on. And um, Colonel, I forget the guy's first name, Brian, who was well, part of the psychological strategy. Joseph Brian. What? Joseph, Joseph Brian. Brian. Yep. He, uh, I guess, and some uh, others, I forget their names, basically pressured Kehoe out. And uh, that's when NICAP started to fall apart. Why did they pressure Kehoe out? He wasn't managing the finances very well. He wasn't managing the finances very well, and he was spending too much time trying to pressure Congress, which hadn't developed much by 68 or so. It was, it was obvious what the uh, late 68, it was obvious what the Conn report was going to be saying. So Kehoe didn't have a leg to stand on as far as they were concerned. He hadn't done very well with NICAP. Now, there are people who say basically... This was the CIA destroying NICAP intentionally, maybe because NICAP was getting too close to the truth or whatever. I don't know. Well, I read the conspiracy theories that go around. Bruce, I don't know if you've, you probably have read all the correspondence around that, but the whole, or the whole operation is laid out in a lot of private correspondence, which I examined while I was researching my encyclopedia. There was all kinds of problems with Keo's management of the organization, and he also he didn't have great managerial skills or any managerial skills. He wasn't there very often. The, the finance were a disaster, and it turned out that according to the bylaws, the board members were going to be responsible for NICAP's debts, and that's what triggered these guys. That's when they just flipped out. And the whole operation, as far as I could tell from reading the correspondence, was organized not by any of these old CIA guys, but by J.B. Hartraff, who was the head of the Pilots Association, the Private Pilots Association. He just went ballistic. He wasn't going to lose all his money because Don Keogh couldn't keep this organization financially afloat. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Jerome Clark, Don Ecker, Kevin Randall, Paul Campbell, Bruce Maccabee, observing the life and times of Richard Hall and the people around him. Now, at some point in time, Hall became from executive secretary to acting director. Is that the point at which Kehoe was tossed out, or was that because Kehoe was never there, which is a fact that I observed in the couple of times I went to NICAP's headquarters before I was persona non grata? Who wants to deal with that? <laughs> Dick Hall left NICAP in 1968. He was there for 10 years, from 58 to 68. Well, now, let's be honest. Uh, Kehoe fired Hall. Really? I, I'm not sure what all the what all the uh, circumstances was, but uh, at, uh, at one point, Kehoe axed Dick. Are you sure of that, Don? Yes. Okay. Hmm. All right. So I, did, I didn't know that. I'd like to take this in just a slightly different direction. I, I asked this question when we did the Keel tribute and got some interesting responses about this. But in trying to understand Richard Hall, the human being, I'm curious if you guys know what his personal, intimate relationships were like. Was this a guy who was ever, was he ever married? Yes. Yes, he was. Um, <laughs> he, he hardly ever talked about it. I don't know whether it was in the 60s, I think in the 60s. Yeah. Diane Kessler. Uh, I, don't know, I think it only lasted a few years. Yeah, contact D, believe it or not, named Diane. Diane Tessman, right. Someone who these days works with Beckley. She was a contactee. This was like marrying your worst enemy, worse than a Republican marrying a Democrat. <laughs> no, a Republican marrying a communist is more like it. <laughs> oh, that's not even close. <laughs> well, now, now, see, now that's an interesting insight into Richard Hall. I mean, I find that very compelling. So he was married to a contactee. Now, obviously, it didn't last very long, right? I'd say a couple of years, but that's my guess. All right. He lived alone the rest of his life? When I interviewed him, I believe he was living with uh, another person, um, sharing sharing his house, um, as well as his cat or cats. But yeah, I think there was somebody else living there. They weren't there when I was there, but um, but I think he was living with somebody else. Yeah, a roommate basically to help pay the rent. Right, right. Just I I know it seems almost a little left field, but I, I, it's always interesting to look at people and their personal relationships and their their web of contacts. Tells you something about them now. This idea that he was he was married to a contactee. I, I, that's a that's a very interest. I, I find it to be an interesting detail. Other people might not. Maybe. Well, well it, it's interesting, but I don't think that he was that he married her so he could get access to right. contact from other worlds. No, no, I'm not, I'm certainly not implying <laughs> that in any way. I, you know, it doesn't sound like it did any. It helped him any either. <laughs> um, you know, but well, no, I, I, it, I have to say, guys. I mean, when I read Paul your piece on on your blog on the other side of truth, and and I, I read that little detail about that state that that Paul's life was in, it, it really, it, it made me profoundly sad. I mean, it really did. And and I, I, I don't want to bring it up again because I know that kind of we launched into that at the very beginning. But I'm the kind of person that wished that he would have had things easier at the end. That there would have been somebody there to help take care of him. 
you know, you, you want to believe when people do good work, when they have integrity, you want to think that they're rewarded for it. I mean, maybe some of us who are still a little idealistic want to want to believe that. Um, I don't think so, any of us are idealistic at this stage. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I think I'm going to try to be then. I'm going to try to be because I, I don't know how else to live. Dick, Dick I, I, deserved everything. He deserved happiness. He deserved prosperity. He deserved honor. Dick was a great and honorable man, and the world is smaller for his absence. I'll tell you, David, I agree with you. Dick was also a proud man, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, he was genuinely proud. And um, I don't pay, um, I don't think any documentary maker should pay um, interviewees. Um, it's a, it's not a cheap thing. It's just a sort of a, a thing about making docs. And, and you know, I'll pay uh, somebody who I might be doing their life story. You pay them a fee for access. But interviewees, Dick Hall um, is the only one that uh, that I ever gave money to. And I had to be very careful. Like, he went upstairs. I remember, you know, here's a personal story about Dick and I. He went upstairs. We're almost done the interview. And I turned to Finley, my, my cameraman who I've worked with for a decade now. And we were just, you know, like, wow. And um, there were the Donald Kehoe archives. It was the only place in his house we could interview him. And his basement was a mess. But it was the only place that even re remotely resembled a place that looked like um you know, uh, something you could interview a guy in. And um, he was uh, disheveled. He had a, uh, a stain on his uh, T-shirt underneath. And, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, he, he didn't have a belt. His pants would start to fall down when he stood up. That was Dick Hall um, as I knew him towards the end of his life. And it was profoundly um, saddening to me. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, fooey on all these people who say that UFO researchers are in it for the money. I mean, screw them. Uh, uh, Dick Hall was not in it for the money. So Finley and I talked, and, you know, we were tight on the budget anyway. We always are. And I said, look, um, you know, I, I just can't not something. And I've never talked about this, but what we did was uh, we agreed that instead of paying him as an interviewee, we, we paid him a consulting fee for helping us research. Um, and so I offered that to Dick, and, and it was the only way that I think Dick would have taken it. And Dick insisted, after, after we offered it to him, came home and, you know, cut, cut him the check, he insisted on actually doing the research. We didn't even need it. We had all our research done. But he, he went, and he would send me notes and stuff, which actually were very helpful for just general UFO research, but suggestions and things like that. Um, and, you know, that's... That's the UFO researcher, uh, not a UFO researcher, that's just what a good man like Dick Hall in the world we live in can some, sometimes wind up through no fault of his own. Well, Paul, that, that that's situation. the Dick Hall I knew. You're absolutely, I mean, I, yeah. I could not even begin to say it better. You, you hit it on the head. He was, he was a very proud man, and, and uh, he, I, if somebody would have offered him help, I, I have my doubts that he would have accepted it. Yeah, I, I don't know. He, he might have. Um, I know that he was um, selling some of the Kehoe archives, or, or all of them, towards the end of his life. I mean, he was having trouble making ends meet on a on a week to week basis. He had bills piled up. He he would we chatted because you know every now and then <laughs> I have debt collectors calling me too. I'm sure we all do. Dick, you know, the phone rang a couple times during the interview, and I actually said, "Do you want to get that?" We can pause, and he said, "No, I know exactly who it is." <laughs> you know, debt collectors. So. Um, that's where Dick Hall was, and that was that's profoundly saddening to me to know that a guy who made such a tremendous contribution on serious UFO research, who's had an impact on my life, 
would wind up there. The, the part, David, that makes me feel good about it, in a sense, is that he never gave up, he never stopped fighting, um, and he never compromised his core principles. And uh, Kevin mentioned something about the CIA thing and, and Dick being an honorable person. I think that's absolutely right. And that's why, you know, that's why his passing should be should be a moment of reflection for anyone who's interested in the UFO phenomenon. Even if you've never heard Dick Ball, you should go read up on him, find out about him. As as not a UFO researcher, just a UFO researcher, but as a person, um, because he was. Well, we were we were all lucky to know him. Yep, absolutely. And an amusing note, uh, more pleasant, is that Richard was also into plants. Probably a few people know it, but he actually really? wrote a little booklet on how to care for plants that are in houses. I remember many years I would go every month uh, to the fund meetings that we held at his house, and he had a various assortment of plants. Um, I don't know if they were still there when Paul went to his house, but yeah. he had various types of plants, including tropical plants, all very healthy. Uh, and I'm wondering, why can't I do that? <laughs> but he had a little booklet that he wrote on it. I had it for many years. I don't know where it is now, but Another thing I discovered about Dick, and this is bizarre, I don't even know how it came up, we were having lunch one time, and it turned out that we both have a lifelong interest in Wyatt Earp, and had read many books <laughs> on the subject that could talk about Wyatt Earp intelligently, and I think both of us were so astounded when we discovered this eccentric mutual interest that we were just, you know, almost fell over. Do <laughs> you know anybody who was up on Doc Holliday? <laughs> yeah, we, well, we, Doc Holliday is part of the larger Herb story. And uh, Dick had read a, a very good biography of Doc Holliday that came out a couple of years ago. And he'd gotten it and he emailed me. He told me I had to go get it and read it by the way. And, you know, he, this is a guy I have a lot of interest. There were many sides to this wonderful man. And uh, I think he was also an artist, correct? A what? Pardon? I think he was also an artist, a painter, if I'm not wrong. Yes. Toward the end, yeah, as I understand yeah. it. Towards yes. the end. Yes. Huh. So this is a man of, uh, this is a, a complex human being. But I, you know, you're all describing him, and the word that comes to my mind is, is mensch. He just sounds like an uber mensch. And you know, Gina, I, I'm sad we didn't get him on the show. He sounds like uh, someone we would have enjoyed speaking with. I think we would have had a pleasant time talking to him because it's hard, and certainly we have an extremely honest, forthright crew here, but in general, it's very hard to find people like that. Yeah. Yeah, amazingly difficult to find people. We don't have an awful lot of time to spend with you guys, and we're scratching the surface of some of the things that he did here. But towards the end of his life, did he have any further goals, things he might have wanted to achieve if he held out a bit longer? Anyone? Well, I talked to him the last time I personally spoke to Dick was, I'm going to guess, about six, seven months ago. I had had an occasion to call him. And uh, we chatted briefly, and he basically then told me, and he asked me to keep it under my hat. He said he had been ill. And I said, well, what, uh, what's wrong? And uh, he indicated that he was suffering with cancer. And I said, oh, geez, Dick. I said, my God. He said, well, he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting it. I'm working on it. I'm doing this and doing that. Uh, he said, but don't, he said, do me a favor. Don't tell anybody. And I said, oh, of course not. I, I will be certainly will keep it under my hat. But, uh, he was pretty much concerned then, I think, more with his health than, than, uh, any other projects. Now, uh, Paul apparently spoke to him much 
uh, uh, more recently. So I, I, I don't, uh, don't know. But when I spoke to him, he, he was just taking care of business as far as his cancer. Yeah, it depended on the day. Um, I do know that towards the, in the last couple of years, he'd actually asked my help. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it never got around to it, but he had, and the exact, I'd have to look at the emails and stuff, the exact thing, but he had a series of interviews that had been done with him, audio interviews. Um, and I think Wendy Connors might have been involved, but I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, it, the tapes, I believe, had been turned over to a third party, and Dick was very keen and interested um, in seeing that these you know, would be done, that he sort of a legacy, I guess. And he became very concerned that nothing was being done with them by this, this third party. So he'd actually asked uh, me if there was something I could help him with, and we never, we never sort of followed up. But I think he, he knew that, you know, um, as much as you could fight, the end was coming. And, uh, and I think, you know, everything from the Journal of UFO Studies, you know, he launched that late in life. Um, historical, that's the right title, isn't it, Jerry? Yes. Yes, yeah. You know, historical sort of... Uh, Journal of UFO History. Yeah. Sorry, yes, Journal of UFO History, right, yeah. Um, you know, that was a project that he launched late in his life as well. So he was still, you know, in the game um, trying to, I think, in some degree, um, cement his legacy, if you will, although he would never put it in that terms. Um, but he wanted, you know, he wanted to make sure that he had his ducks in, in, in a row and that he was still leaving things that could continue on continue on after him, which which I think he has. Guys, before we leave, Paul Kimball, tell us where we can find more of the things that you do. Um, I don't know. Turn on your television channel if you're in Canada and hopefully someday in the United States. Um, redstarfilms.blogspot.com. And in terms of, I would just add in case nobody else does, uh, www.hallrichard.com is uh, Dick's website. And there's a number of very good pieces that he wrote about, um, short too, about the UFO, things like conceptualizing UFOs and stuff. Um, if you know nothing about the man, log on to that and start there. And there, that will just want you to read more. Kevin Randall, what do you have coming out, or what can we do to reach you? www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com uh, is my blog at a different perspective. And as you mentioned, or somebody mentioned earlier, I do have a, a, a piece on Richard Hall up there now. And uh, next spring, I've got a new book on focus coming out, so there will be other things uh, available. Jerry Clark, you've got a book coming out soon. Yeah, I'm finishing up a book, uh, and then I'm going to start another one, and, and uh, I'm going to do another book on 19th century Fortiana, and then I'm probably going to do a book on the, the whole culture of ufology for an academic publisher. And then you take a rest cure. Oh, I'm just, I'm going to sit in the front porch and pet my cat. <laughs> Don Ecker. Forever. <laughs> Don Ecker www.darkmattersradio.com is uh, my blog site, and uh, I've been doing recently quite a bit of fiction writing. And as a matter of fact, a published novel of mine, uh, right now I'm, I'm speaking with a, a company that uh, would like to turn it into a series of graphic novels, a la comic books. So we'll see what happens there. Outstanding. But, uh, Outstanding. That sounds great. Bruce Maccabee, where do we find out more of the things that you do? Well, I don't have a uh, blog spot. I have a website, www.brumac.8k.com. That's B-R-U-M-A-C dot number eight, letter K, dot com. Uh, you'll find a hundred megabytes of uh, 
case analyses and so on on there, and um, I'm not uh, presently writing a book. I'm thinking I might sometime, but uh, basically trying to hold on. I, I have enough trouble keeping up with the UFO updates and other stuff that's going on continuously, uh, plus the rest of my life. So <laughs> anyway, I invite anybody to uh, go and uh, look at my website there and spend time reading detailed scientific analyses of various sightings. Paul Kimball, Kevin Randall, Jerome Clark, Don Ecker, Bruce McAbee, thanks for spending two hours with us to remember Richard H. Hall. I guess the one word we can all agree on is this guy had integrity, right? Thanks for joining oh, yeah. us. Right. Thank you. See ya. Thanks, guys. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.